Well, it doesn't begin, excuse me, let me start over. It doesn't work to begin in the middle of a story. Uh, If you're watching a new movie, you can't begin in the middle of the movie and make sense out of what's going on. Uh, Characters will say things that don't add up. They'll make choices that you don't understand. Uh, When you're with friends and you're invited into the middle of a conversation that's already been going, you, you know that you can't really participate wisely until you understand where the conversation has been. You can't begin in the middle of the story. And if you start the Christmas season with the baby in the manger, I would propose that you're actually starting in the middle of the story, and there's going to be things that make no sense. Why is it so important for the child to be named Jesus, which in Hebrew means Yahweh saves? Uh, Why are the angels so excited to announce His birth? Why the journey of the Magi? Why the panic of Herod? To understand, you have to begin at the beginning of the story, and that's what I want to do today. This December, I want to take you on a journey through Matthew chapters 1 and 2, and I don't want to start in the place where Matthew tells us about the birth of Christ. I actually want to start with the genealogy that Matthew gives us because I believe that takes us back to the beginning of the story. I believe that the genealogy Matthew gives us serves as a prologue to the birth of Jesus. So, please turn in your Bible to Matthew chapter 1, verse 1. I would propose to you that the story of the baby in the manger, at least in Matthew's gospel, begins with God's covenant with Abraham and His promise to bless all the nations of the earth through one of Abraham's descendants. And so, this morning, we're going to begin our Christmas series by studying the genealogy of Jesus in Matthew Uh, 1 verses 1 through 17. Now, here's what that means. It means that, yes, I am choosing to preach a genealogy not out of obligation because we chose the book of the Bible that has one, and I like to go verse by verse, but I am choosing of my own free will as I preach topically at Christmas to preach a genealogy because I believe it's a prologue to the birth of the baby Jesus. Let's read the genealogy of Jesus together, beginning in Matthew chapter 1 verse 1. The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. Perez was the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab, Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of David the king. David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who had been the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa. Asa was the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah. Uzziah was the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, and Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah was the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel, and Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim the father of Atzor. Atzor was the father of Zadok, 
and Zadok the father of Achim, and Achim the father of Eliud, and Eliud the father of Eliezer, Eliezer the father of Mathon, and Mathon the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So all the generations of Abraham, uh, excuse me, all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to Messiah, 14 generations. This is God's Word. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, nothing is more important in the preaching and hearing of Your Word than faithfulness to the text, humility of mind, hunger to know and obey the truth, confession where we've been wrong, and renewed faith in the provision King Jesus has made. So, Father, I pray now that You would pour out Your Spirit upon me as I preach and upon all of us as we reckon with Your truth. Meet us in our weaknesses and give us greater grace so that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts during this message may be pleasing in Your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. We ask for this in the saving name of Jesus and all of God's people said, Amen. Here at Grace Fellowship Church, we believe the Holy Spirit moved prophets and apostles to write every word of Scripture in such a way that they wrote with their own unique personalities and vocabularies and writing styles, and yet what they wrote was word for word what God intended. Every word of the Hebrew Old Testament and the Greek New Testament is there by divine intentionality. Our doctrinal statement sums it up this way. We believe the Holy Scriptures to be the verbally inspired Word of God, authoritative, without error, infallible, and God-breathed. The Apostle Peter explains, no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men, moved by the Holy Spirit, spoke from God. Uh, if you remember, during His earthly ministry, our Lord Jesus won an argument with the Sadducees uh, over the reality of the resurrection not based on a single word in the Exodus account, but based on a single verb tense of a single verb in that account. The Apostle Paul applies the Abrahamic covenant to his own context based on the singular construction of a single noun in the Abrahamic covenant. So we don't just believe that the Bible is the Word of God, we believe it's the very words of God down to the construction of every verb and the declension of every noun, which means that all the genealogies in the Bible are there for a reason and they serve a purpose. But here's the rub with the genealogies. When it's time to read them in our Bible reading plan or even time to preach them, all of us, pastors included, we like to just skip over them. Uh, and, and it's not just that they could come off as maybe boring. The, the other issue is we just don't know what to do with them. How do they apply? How, how do we make them relevant to the age we live in? I, I think most of us know, I know many of you are mature believers, and I know that many of you know that when you come to a genealogy, the main way to study it is to ask the question, well, what is it here for? Why does the author include it? But even after you discover the reason for the genealogy, in the Old Testament, the reason for some of those genealogies has long disappeared with the coming of the new covenant. It's not that they don't serve a purpose, they serve an important purpose in their context, but we're in the new covenant now and they don't seem to be very relevant 
to us. So how do we apply the genealogies? What could they possibly have to offer us? Well, to answer that question, we need to actually back up and ask a bigger question about how you apply Scripture uh, in your own life. The Bible's genealogies and historical narratives and poems and apostolic letters, uh, they take thoughtful work to reapply to our current context with relevance. And one of the most important things you have to do is ask the question, what did they mean to the original audience who heard them or read them first? Uh, maybe we could start here. The way not to apply them is to skip thinking about the time period they were written in and what they meant to the original audience who heard or read them, and just apply it as if it was a direct message to you. Uh, if you ignore the original audience that uh, these things were written to, and you receive them as if they were written directly to you, about you, with your issues in view, you'll misapply the Scriptures. For example, later this month, we're going to read the angel's command to Joseph to take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt because Herod wants to kill the child. Well, the way to apply that is not for anyone in the congregation to go out and take that as a secret message that they need to buy a plane ticket to Egypt. That, that's just not what's going on. If you try to apply the Bible that way, you'll misapply it. Uh, what you'll do is you'll end up distorting the Bible. You'll make it into an omni-relevant magic book teeming with secret messages and hidden meanings. But God doesn't intend His words to function that way. The genealogies do apply to you and I, but they apply differently than a passage, say, where uh, an apostle gives a direct command for all believers for the entire church age. The genealogies apply more by extension and analogy. Maybe we could sum it up this way. There is a way in which the genealogies are directly irrelevant to your life. Your name isn't on the list. Uh, the reason for some of the Old Testament genealogies disappeared long a long time ago. You gain nothing by knowing that Cos fathered Anub, Zoba, and the clans of Aharahel, 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 1 Chronicles 4.8. That, that doesn't really give you much. But when you listen rightly, the genealogies intend many good things, and they apply to you indirectly by way of extension. For starters, one of the charms, I think, of the genealogies is that they apply to you precisely because they're not about you. You're not the center of the universe, and the genealogies locate you in a bigger story than just your immediate uh, life concerns and the people you know. What they do is they teach you to notice God and other people in their own right. Uh, they call you to understand yourself within a bigger story than your history and immediate concerns. They reorient you and locate you within the community of God's people from every era and not just uh, the people you know in your current context. The genealogies are also reminders that the good shepherd counts the sheep by ones and knows every sheep by name. They remind us that God cares about individuals, families, and communities. Taken in their larger context in Scripture, they remind us that God is faithful to His promises through the long ages of history. They're also, I think, an indirect reminder, an echo, if you will, uh, of a reminder that our Lord writes down names in His book of life. So, when you combine the reading and the study of the genealogies with faith, what they communicate is that Yahweh is your God, 
These people are your people. This book has your family history in it, and you've been invited into the family of God to participate in who God is and what He does. Now, Matthew's genealogy here in Matthew chapter 1, I think it applies uh, in, a, in a much more straightforward way than some of those Old Testament genealogies that are difficult. Uh, Matthew begins his account with this genealogy, and he even tells you why he's including it. In verse 1, he writes, the record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Matthew begins by uh, giving Jesus of Nazareth three titles. The first title is the Messiah. Now, that Hebrew, uh, in the Hebrew Old Testament, the word Messiah means anointed one. And by calling Jesus the Messiah, Matthew is claiming that Jesus of Nazareth is the long-awaited Messiah that Moses and the prophets foretold. In the Old Testament, God gave over 300 prophecies about a Savior He would send into the world for Israel, but who wouldn't just bless Israel, Israel's Savior would also bless all the Gentile nations of the earth. And so, Matthew is arguing this Jesus is the one that Moses and the prophets prophesied God would send, which is important because what it means for us as we interpret Matthew's gospel is that Matthew isn't saving the identity of Jesus for a big reveal at the end of the gospel. He's telling you right up front, this is who Jesus is. And Matthew also gives us two other titles for Jesus. He is the son of Abraham and the son of David. And I want to spend the rest of our time talking about what those titles mean. And I'm going to start with son of Abraham first, because Abraham in chronological order comes before David. As many of you know, Abraham uh, is the father of the Jewish nation. In Genesis 12, God made a covenant with Abraham and made this promise. He made a promise to Abraham that uh, through, quote, all the, uh, through Abraham, quote, all the families of the earth will be blessed. Later on in Genesis 22, he tells Abraham, in your seed, singular, in your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. Now, when, in Hebrew, when they talk about your seed, that's just a way of talking about your descendants, your offspring. In one of your offspring, all the nations of the earth will be blessed blessed. And so, uh, seed here is just a Hebrew way of speaking about God blessing the world through one of Abraham's special descendants. And in Galatians 3.16, the Apostle Paul picks up on uh, what uh, Moses says in Genesis 22, and this is how he applies it, quote, "'Now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say, and to seeds, plural, referring to many,' but rather to one, and to your seed that is the Messiah. So, by calling Jesus the son of Abraham, Matthew is alerting us to the fact that Jesus is the special descendant of Abraham through whom all the families of the earth will be blessed. In other words, Jesus is a universal Savior, the universal Savior God promised to send. He is not just a blessing to Israel, even though He's Israel's Messiah. He is a blessing to all the nations and all the families of the earth, Gentiles as well as Jews. And even the details of this genealogy point to Jesus as a universal Savior. 
when you're studying a genealogy, obviously the, the first order of business is to discover, well, what's the genealogy there for? Why did the author put it in? What, service, uh, what, what purpose is it uh, serving in this book of the Bible? But another thing you want to keep your eye out for as you interpret it is anything that seems different or out of place within the genealogy. One thing that is odd within this genealogy is that in Hebrew genealogies, uh, they just uh, wrote in terms of fathers and sons. This father begat so-and-so, and so-and-so and so begat such-and-such. Such. But five times in this genealogy, Matthew interrupts the rhythm of father to son by listing women. He lists Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, Bathsheba, and Mary. And I think we can learn a lot from that. First of all, it points back to Jesus being a universal blessing and that even His family tree includes Gentile women that God saved and grafted in uh, to the line of Messiah. For example, Tamar and Rahab were Canaanites. Ruth was a Moabitess, and she even has an entire book of the Bible name for her. It's called… Okay, good. I'm just trying to make sure that my genealogy sermon didn't put everybody to sleep. That's all, that's all I was doing there. Uh, right, so uh, uh, um, Tamar and Rahab are Canaanites, Ruth's a Moabitess. Uh, we think that Bathsheba may have been a Hittite because she was married to Uriah the Hittite, but we don't know for sure with her. But my point is that even in the genealogy of Jesus, the way that God redeemed people in the Old Testament, like the way He redeemed uh, uh, Rahab from Jericho, the way He redeemed Ruth from Moab, it points to Christ as a universal Savior for men and women, for Jews and Gentiles. But we can take it even a step further because the life stories of all these women in the genealogies are recorded for us in the Bible. And if you know anything about uh, the stories of these women, you know that at least three of these women had shady pasts. Uh, Ruth and Mary are the exceptions. Uh, there's no dirt on them in Scripture, and, and obviously Mary was a Hebrew, a Hebrew woman. But the other three women were not model citizens before being reconciled to God. Um, Maybe I could illustrate it for you this way, just personally. Uh, we do a lot of corporate prayer here at Grace Fellowship Church, and you may have noticed uh, when I pray, I have certain habits, certain phrases I repeat over and over, and that's not a good habit. I'm trying to break myself of that habit. But when I pray privately, uh, if I'm able to find a, a place where I can be alone and pray out loud uh, to God and just pour out my heart in prayer, uh, if I'm praying through my prayer journal, and I'm praying for a single Christian man who I know wants to get married, he wants to find a wife and, and get married, I'll often pray as a matter of habit uh, that God will bless him with a Proverbs 31 kind of woman, an excellent wife uh, who will encourage his faith, right? And if I'm really worked up, if I'm really passionate, sometimes I pull names down from the Old Testament, and I pray that God would give my friend uh, a Sarah, Hannah, Ruth, Esther kind of woman, you know, great women of faith from the Old Testament. I don't remember ever praying for God to give my friend a Tamar, Rahab, Bathsheba kind of woman. It just, I don't know, didn't cross my mind, which is probably not fair to them, right? Because Rahab becomes a, a great woman of faith, right? And, and Bathsheba as well, and she parents Solomon. But I mean, if you know about their stories, you know they have checkered past, uh, right? Uh, when we first meet Tamar, she shows up in Genesis 38, 
And to be fair, it's a complicated story, and the story begins with her father-in-law Judah wronging her, but before the story's over, she ends up seducing him by posing as a prostitute. And at the end of the story, uh, Judah, it's clear that Judah is the villain, and he even confesses publicly, she's more righteous than I am, but Tamar's choices during the story are less than flattering. Uh, Rahab is grafted into Israel uh, and the line of Messiah. She becomes a great woman of faith, but when we first meet her, uh, she's a prostitute in Jericho. Bathsheba becomes the wife of King David and the mother of Solomon, but when we first meet her, I, I and, and pastors disagree on what's going on, but I interpret her as committing adultery. Here are my, my reasons why I would say that. Certainly in what happened, David bears more responsibility. He was a king. He was in authority. That puts her in a difficult situation. However, the Bible is straightforward with us. One of the things I love about the Bible is that it looks the evil full in the face uh, and is honest about how messed up the world is, but it doesn't give the evil final say. The Bible does not pull punches to try and sanitize stories, and you know that if you've ever read through the Old Testament. The Bible does not shy away in situations in the Old Testament. When a man violates a woman's consent, the Bible does not shy away from calling that what it is. The Bible does all, also does not shy away from telling us in graphic detail what David's sins were. So, if David violated her consent, I think the Bible would say so, but it doesn't, which means I have to interpret what Bathsheba did uh, even though David bears more responsibility, I believe she was a co-conspirator, that she was willing, and that she commit adultery. Now, uh, uh, not only are these unexpected Gentile women then, uh, Tamar and Rahab and possibly Bathsheba in the genealogy of Jesus, they're all women who have checkered pasts. And uh, what I said about Tamar and Bathsheba may tip you off to the fact that it's not just the women in the genealogy who have checkered past. It's also the men. The men have skeletons in their closets too. Uh, Abraham lies twice about Sarah being his wife. Uh, Judah, again, accidentally had relationship, uh, relations with his daughter-in-law, but because she thought he was, uh, she was a prostitute, which doesn't make the story any better. Uh, David committed adultery and worse. Uh, David's grandson, Rehoboam, received the kingdom of Israel at a time of uh, unprecedented peace and prosperity and quickly split the kingdom in two because of his own pride and foolishness. And even the good kings on the list that descend from David before the Babylonian exile, even the good ones are problematic. Uh, Uzziah and Hezekiah were good kings who worshiped the Lord, and yet by the end of their reigns, their reigns ended poorly because of their own sins. And so, the point I want to make here is not that if a name is on the genealogy, that means they were automatically a good person. In fact, some of the men listed in this genealogy died worshiping foreign gods and were lost. Uh, no, the point is that in God's redeeming plan in the life of Messiah, you see God saving people who society didn't consider respectable. And that points forward to the truth that Jesus came not to call people who think that they're righteous and don't need Him to salvation. He came to call people who know they're sinners to repentance and faith. 
As the son of Abraham, Jesus came to bring universal salvation to Jews and Gentiles, men and women, respectable sinners and sinners whose sins make them unrespectable in polite society. He came to be the Savior of all. Jesus is the seed God promised to Abraham to bring universal blessing. But Matthew also tells us that Jesus is the son of David, and that points to the idea that He's the prophesied eternal King. Uh, Another thing that's odd about this genealogy is that David's name is listed five times. More than anybody else in the genealogy, his name is listed multiple times, and it really appears that of all the ancestors of Jesus, Matthew is really pointing us to David. He even mentions David uh, as the, the title son of David before son of Abraham, even though that's in reverse of chronological order. David is clearly important in Matthew's genealogy. And uh, I think that Matthew may even be showing us that uh, in a way that the in the way that the genealogy is structured. He groups the ancestors of Jesus into three groups of fourteen. Now, in Hebrew genealogies, it was acceptable to skip generations. It was acceptable for you, for instance, to name a famous ancestor and then skip all the way down to their great-grandson just to show that the line continued unbroken and to keep the genealogy from being laboriously long. And, and so that was something that they could do. And if you look at this genealogy, one of the things you'll find if you go and check it with Old Testament genealogies is that Matthew does skip generations. And that's okay. That was an acceptable way to do genealogies uh, for the Jews. Um, But one of the things that's clear here in the genealogy is he seems to be obsessed with making everything fit into 14, right? 14 generations from uh, Abraham to David, 14 from David to the captivity, 14 from the captivity to the birth of Jesus. And what he's doing there, I believe, is something creative that Jews in the first century would have spotted, but that we're likely to miss. Uh, In Hebrew, every letter of their alphabet was given a number. Uh, It would be like us numbering our alphabet at A equals 1, B equals 2, C equals 3, and and so on and so forth. And uh, also, in addition to that, in Hebrew, their alphabet only has consonants. And the way it works is that fluent Hebrew speakers know which vowel sounds to put between each consonant. And eventually what happened, as the rabbis were trying to teach Jews who grew up in other countries and didn't know Hebrew, as they were trying to, uh, to teach uh, young boys before their bar mitzvah and girls before their bat mitzvah Hebrew uh, when it wasn't their native language, eventually the rabbis added vowel points uh, next, to the, um, next to the consonants that help those of us who aren't fluent speakers know what vowel sounds to put there. But, but here's the point. In Hebrew, the name David shows up as D, V, and D, and in the Hebrew alphabet, D is given the numeric value of 4, and V is given the nu- numeric value of 6. So, 4 plus 6 plus 4 equals… it's dangerous to do math in public. 14, yes, 14, amen. Uh, Yeah, 14. And so, uh, 14 is the numeric value in Hebrew of David's name. So, I think even in the structure of the genealogy, Matthew is trying to point us to the fact that this Jesus of Nazareth is the son of David. But then here's the question, 
Why is it so important that He's the son of David? Well, it all goes back to the prophecies God gave about the Savior He would send into the world. After mankind fell into sin, God made a promise that there would be a seed of Eve, in other words, a descendant of Eve, who would crush the head of the serpent. In time, we learn that that seed of Eve will also be a descendant of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. Now, Jacob had 12 sons, and at the end of his life, he prophesied that the promised seed of Eve would come through the, his son Judah. And then in first, excuse me, 2 Samuel verse 7, uh, sorry, 2 Samuel chapter 7, uh, God gives the Davidic covenant. And in that covenant, we learn that the Savior God sends into the world will descend from King David and will be a king who will reign over an eternal kingdom. And so, from 2 Samuel 7 on, the Jewish people were waiting for the great Savior God would send into the world to be a descendant of King David. By the time Jesus was born, the title, Son of David, served as a messianic title for the Jewish people. Uh, and this becomes a theme throughout Matthew's gospel. Uh, people come to Jesus to be healed, and they cry out, have mercy on us, Son of David. Uh, Jesus casts out demons, and the witnesses who see it say to one another, could this be the Son of David? Uh, at His triumphal entry, um, when Jesus is entering Jerusalem, the people shout, Hosanna to the Son of David. Faithful Jews were looking forward to, with anticipation to the day when God would send the promised Messiah into the world, and they understood that He would be a descendant of David and a king, which is why this genealogy is so important. The genealogy is alerting Matthew's Jewish readers to the fact that Jesus of Nazareth has the right credentials in terms of His lineage to fulfill the prophecies. Through this genealogy, Matthew is alerting his Jewish readers, and now us, that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah and the King we've all been waiting for. Now, I realize when I say it that way, the King we've all been waiting for, that, that's actually a hard sell for Americans. You may not have always been waiting for Him or anticipating Him, and also, uh, it's a hard sell for Americans because we don't like kings. The whole point of king and he's going to have an eternal kingdom, king and kingdom, those words, uh, what they do is they, they're the language of monarchy, and we don't like kings. We don't like monarchies. We believe in democracy because in theory, it doesn't always work out perfectly, but in theory, democracy brings accountability to world leaders with its free press and regularly held elections. It is supposed to be a check on tyrants. Even, even when they serve in office, uh, uh, there are term, for example, for our president, there are term limits. And when we look at other countries that have monarchies, uh, we can be gracious. We can give the UK a pass, because even though they have a royal family, we know that all the power really resides with an elected parliament, so we give them a pass. But we don't like absolute monarchies, like the monarchy in Saudi Arabia or the monarchy in Oman, and we don't like one-party systems, the one-party systems that communist countries set up, like China and North Korea. And we have good and legitimate reasons for preferring democracy over a kingdom. 
In his essay, Equality, C.S. Lewis explains why he believes in democracy, and this is the single best paragraph I've ever found on why I also believe in democracy. C.S. Lewis says, quote, I believe in democracy because I believe in the fall of man. I think most people believe in democracy for the opposite reason. A great deal of democratic enthusiasm descends from the ideas of people like Rousseau, who believed in democracy because they thought mankind so wise and so good that everyone deserved a share in the government. The danger of defending democracy on those grounds is that they're not true. I find they're not true without looking further than myself. I don't deserve a share in governing a hen roost, much less a nation. The real reason for democracy is just the reverse. Mankind is so fallen that no man can be trusted with unchecked power over his fellows. Aristotle said that some people were only fit to be slaves. I do not contradict him, but I reject slavery because I see no men fit to be masters. The reason that kings are so unattractive to us is because in this age, the only ones available are flawed and sinful. But if there was a king who was entirely trustworthy because he was holy, if there was a king who wasn't tempted to do evil, didn't commit evil, and didn't tempt others in his administration to do evil, uh, if there was a king who was not limited in his wisdom and goodness and power and love, if there was a king who even was willing to die to pay the penalty for his rebellious, treasonous subjects, then a monarchy would actually be the best of all forms of government. If there was a king without weakness or folly or sin, then only a fool or a rebel wouldn't want that king. And that's the king that the baby Jesus has grown up to become, and he will return soon to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. Mm. Excuse me. Uh, maybe I could illustrate it for you this way. Uh, Nathan and I, Nathan Janney and I, were taking the youth group through First uh, Samuel. We're studying 1 Samuel, and it's instructive in 1 Samuel 8 that when the people of Israel come to Samuel and they ask Samuel to have a king, and, and Samuel pushes back on him, when they argue with him, one of the reasons they give him for wanting a king is because they want a king who will fight their battles. Now, it was true that it was good that they saw their need for a king. The problem is what they were doing, in essence, is they were rejecting God from being their king to have a human king like all the other nations. So that was the problem. But they were right to see the need for a king to fight their battles. Now, you may not naturally be inclined to want a king in your life. Uh, maybe you're the master of your own fate, you're the captain of your so own soul, so you don't want a king. Or maybe you don't mind bowing the knee to good government as long as it's a democracy with a heaping helping of libertarianism in it that lets you do your own thing. But <clears throat> the fact is, whether you realize it or not, you need the son of David as your king. And the reason you need him as your king is to fight battles for you that you can't win. You need King Jesus to fight the battle for your freedom, for example. Uh, so often in our public discourse uh, in America, personal freedom is discussed in terms of freeing the individual from unjust people out there who want to exercise illegitimate authority over them. 
And that is a real problem that the Bible does address at length in all of its passages about doing justice. But more often in the Bible, the preoccupation of the prophets and the apostles is freeing the individual from slavery to sin, from the oppression of the sin nature which dwells in all of our hearts. And the same is true in the teachings of Jesus. Consider for a moment this exchange Jesus has with the Jews of His own generation that is so apt for us uh, and our contemporary conversations about personal freedom and uh, freeing individuals from oppression. So, Jesus was saying to those Jews who had believed in Him, if you continue in My Word, then you are truly disciples of Mine, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered Him, we are Abraham's descendants and have never yet been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say we will become free? Jesus answered them, truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. You are a slave to sin. If you take uh, an honest look at God's moral law and you compare your life against it, not only will you see that you've commit sin, you'll also have to admit that there are certain sins that are habitual. They're addictive. Uh, you, you're entrapped in them. You, you don't agree with them in your heart, but you know this week you're going to go out and most likely, uh, if this week plays out like your moral track record did the last week, you'll probably fall into them again. And uh, uh, that battle against sin is a sin you can't win on your own. It's the primary battle that King Jesus came to win. His victory over sin at the cross frees those who are His from the penalty of our sins, but it also frees us from the enslaving power of sin, and it sets us free to live lives of righteousness as an act of worship to God. You are also, whether you realize it or not, a slave to death and the fear of it. You need a king who will win the battle over death and the voluntary death of Jesus at the cross, and then the way that the Father raised Him bodily from the dead on the third day won that victory. Uh, he won a victory over death. Uh, the author of Hebrews explains it this way, again with reference to our slavery. Since the children share in flesh and blood, the Lord's Messiah likewise partook of the same, that through death He might render powerless him who had the power over death, that is, the devil, and might free those who through fear of death were subject to slavery all their lives. You need a hero to win battles you can't win. And that's precisely what the long-awaited Messiah, the seed of Abraham, the son of David, the eternal king, has come and done. He's won the battle for your freedom from sin. He's won the battle over the devil who you can't defeat on your own. He's also defeated our biggest enemy, which is death itself. And He promises resurrection life and eternal life to all who will confess their sins and follow Him. And that is the whole story of the baby in the manger that we celebrate at Christmas, uh, and that is what Matthew's genealogy invites us to understand as we celebrate the Christmas season. Let's pray. 